It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli. I guess. Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Inhabitants. Having sketched in, however slightly, the background of our picture. We must now attempt to fill in the figures, to describe the inhabitants of the astral plane. The immense variety of these entities makes it exceedingly difficult to arrange and tabulate them. Perhaps the most convenient method will be to divide them into three great classes, the human, the non-human, and the artificial. 1. Human. The human denizens of Karmaloka fall naturally into two groups, the living and the dead, or, to speak more accurately, those who still have a physical body and those who have not. 1. Living The entities which manifest on the astral plane during physical life may be subdivided into four classes. 1. The adept, or chela, in the Maya Virupa. This body is the artificial vehicle used on the four lower or rupa divisions of the Devachanic plane by those capable of functioning there during earth life and is formed out of the substance of the mind body. The pupil is at first unable to construct this for himself and has therefore to be content with his ordinary astral body composed of the less refined matter of the karmic aura. But at a certain stage of his progress the master himself forms his Mayavirupa for him for the first time, and afterwards instructs and assists him until he can make it for himself easily and expeditiously. When this facility is attained, this vehicle is habitually used in place of the grosser astral body, since it permits of instant passage from the astral to the Devachanic plane and back again at will, and allows of the use at all times of the higher powers belonging to its own plane. It must be noted, however, that a person travelling in the Maya Virupa is not perceptible to merely astral vision unless he chooses to make himself so by gathering around him particles of astral matter and so creating for himself a temporary body suitable to that plane. Though such a temporary creation would resemble the ordinary astral body only as a materialization resembles the physical body, in each case, it is a manifestation of a higher entity on a lower plane in order to make himself visible to those whose senses cannot yet transcend that plane. But whether he be in the Maya Virupa or the astral body, the pupil who is introduced to the astral plane under the guidance of a competent teacher has always the fullest possible consciousness there and is in fact himself exactly as his friends know him on earth minus only the four lower principles in the former case, and the three lower in the latter, 
and plus the additional powers and faculties of this higher condition, which enable him to carry on far more easily and far more efficiently on that plane during sleep, the theosophical work which occupies so much of his thought in his waking hours. Whether he will remember fully and accurately on the physical plane what he has done or learnt on the other, depends largely, as before stated, upon whether he is able to carry his consciousness without intermission from the one state to the other. 2. The psychically developed person who is not under the guidance of a master. Such a person may or may not be spiritually developed, for the two forms of advancement do not necessarily go together, and when a man is born with psychic powers, it is simply the result of efforts made during a previous incarnation, which may have been of the noblest and most unselfish character, or on the other hand, may have been ignorant and ill-directed, or even entirely unworthy. Such a one will usually be perfectly conscious when out of the body, but for want of proper training is liable to be greatly deceived as to what he sees. He will often be able to range through the different subdivisions of the astral plane almost as fully as persons belonging to the last class, but sometimes he is especially attracted to some one division, and rarely travels beyond its influences. His recollection of what he has seen may vary according to the degree of his development, through all the stages from perfect clearness to utter distortion or blank oblivion. He will appear always in the astral body, since by the hypothesis he does not know how to form the Maya Virupa. 3. The Ordinary Person That is, the person without any psychic development, floating about in his astral body, in a more or less unconscious condition. In deep slumber, the higher principles in their astral vehicle almost invariably withdraw from the body and hover in its immediate neighbourhood, practically almost as much as sleep as the latter. In some cases, however, this astral vehicle is less lethargic and floats dreamily about on the various astral currents, occasionally recognising other people in a similar condition, and meeting with experiences of all sorts, pleasant and unpleasant, the memory of which, hopelessly confused and often travestied into a grotesque caricature of what really happened, will cause the man to think next morning what a remarkable dream he has had. These extruded astral bodies are almost shapeless, and very indefinite in outline in the case of the more backward races and individuals but as the man develops in intellect and spirituality, his floating astral becomes better defined and more closely resembles his physical encasement. Since the psychical faculties of mankind are in course of evolution, and individuals are at all stages of their development, this class naturally melts by imperceptible gradations into the former one. 4. The Black Magician or His Pupil this class corresponds closely to the first, except that the development has been for evil instead of good, and the powers acquired are used for purely selfish purposes, instead of for the benefit of humanity. Among its lower ranks come members of the Negro race, who practice the ghastly rites of the Obea or Voodoo schools, and the medicine men of many a savage tribe, while higher in intellect, and therefore the more blameworthy, stand the Tibetan black magicians, who are often, though incorrectly called by Europeans, Dukpas, a title properly belonging, 
as is quite correctly explained by Surgeon Major Waddell in his recent work on the Buddhism of Tibet, only to the Bhutanese subdivision of the great Kagyu sect, which is part of what may be called the semi-reformed school of Tibetan Buddhism. The Dukpas no doubt deal in tantric magic to a considerable extent, but the real red-hatted, entirely unreformed sect is that of the Nyin Ma Pa, though far beyond them, in a still lower depth, lie the Bon Pa, the votaries of the aboriginal religion, who have never accepted any form of Buddhism at all. It must not, however, be supposed that all Tibetan sects, except the Gelugpa, are necessarily and altogether evil. A truer view would be, that as the rules of other sects permit considerably greater laxity of life and practice, the proportion of self-seekers among them is likely to be much larger than among the stricter reformers. The investigator will occasionally meet on the astral plane students of occultism from all parts of the world, belonging to lodges quite unconnected with the masters of whom theosophists know most, who are in many cases most earnest and self-sacrificing seekers after truth. It is noteworthy, however, that all such lodges are at least aware of the existence of the great Himalayan Brotherhood, and acknowledge it as containing among its members the highest adepts now known on earth. 2. Dead To begin with, of course, this very word, dead, is an absurd misnomer, as most of the entities classified under this heading are as fully alive as we are ourselves. The term must be understood as meaning those who are, for the time, unattached to a physical body. They may be subdivided into nine principal classes as follows. 1. The Nirmanakaya. This class is just mentioned in order to make the catalogue complete, but it is, of course, very rarely indeed that so exalted a being manifests himself upon so low a plane as this. When for any reason connected with his sublime work, he found it desirable to do so, he would probably create a temporary astral body for the purpose, just as the adept in the Mayavirupa would do, since the more refined bestia would be invisible to astral sight. Further information about the position and work of the Nurmanakayas may be found in Madame Blavatsky's Theosophical Glossary and The Voice of the Silence. 2. The Chela Awaiting Reincarnation it has frequently been stated in theosophical literature that when the pupil reaches a certain stage, he is able, with the assistance of his master, to escape from the action of what is, in ordinary cases, the law of nature which carries a human being into the devachanic condition after death, there to receive his due reward in the full working out of all the spiritual forces which his highest aspirations have set in motion while on earth. As the pupil must, by the hypothesis, be a man of pure life and high thought, it is probable that in his case these spiritual forces will be of abnormal strength, and therefore if he, to use the technical expression, takes his devachan, it is likely to be an extremely long one. But if, instead of taking it, he chooses the path of renunciation, thus, even at his low level and in his humble way, beginning to follow in the footsteps of the great master of renunciation, Gautama Buddha himself, he is able to expend that reserve of force in quite another direction, to use it for the benefit of mankind, and so, 
infinitesimal though his offering may be, to take his tiny part in the great work of the Nurmanakayas. By taking this course, he no doubt sacrifices centuries of intense bliss, but on the other hand, he gains the enormous advantage of being able to continue his life of work and progress without a break. When a pupil who has decided to do this dies, he simply steps out of his body, as he has often done before, and waits upon the astral plane until a suitable reincarnation can be arranged for him by his master. This being a marked departure from the usual course of procedure, the permission of a very high authority has to be obtained before the attempt can be made. Yet even when this is granted, so strong is the force of natural law that it is said that the pupil must be careful to confine himself strictly to the karmaloka while the matter is being arranged. Lest, if he once, even for a moment, touch the devachanic plane, he might be swept, as by an irresistible current, into the line of normal evolution again. In some cases, though these are rare, he is enabled to avoid the trouble of a new birth by being placed directly in an adult body whose previous tenant has no further use for it. But naturally, it is not often that a suitable body is available. Far more frequently, he has to wait on the astral plane, as mentioned before, until the opportunity of a fitting birth presents itself. In the meantime, however, he is losing no time, for he is just as fully himself as ever he was, and is able to go on with the work given him by his master even more quickly and efficiently than when in the physical body, since he is no longer hampered by the possibility of fatigue. His consciousness is, of course, quite complete, and he roams at will through all the divisions of the Karmaloka with equal facility. The Chela awaiting reincarnation is by no means one of the common objects of the astral plane, but still he may be met with occasionally, and therefore he forms one of our classes. No doubt as the evolution of humanity proceeds, and an ever-increasing proportion enter upon the path of holiness, this class will become more numerous. 3. The Ordinary Person After Death Needless to say, this class is millions of times larger than those of which we have spoken, and the character and condition of its members vary within extremely wide limits. Within similarly wide limits may vary also the length of their lives upon the astral plane, for while there are those who pass only a few days or hours there, others remain upon this level for many years and even centuries. A man who has led a good and pure life, whose strongest feelings and aspirations have been unselfish and spiritual, will have no attraction to this plane, and will, if entirely left alone, find little to keep him upon it, or to awaken him into activity even during the comparatively short period of his stay. For it must be understood that after death the true man is withdrawing into himself, and just as at the first step of that process he casts off the physical body, and almost directly afterwards the etheric double and the prana, so it is intended that he should, as soon as possible, cast off also the astral or karmic body, and pass into the devachanic condition, where alone his spiritual aspirations can find their full fruition. The noble and pure-minded man will be able to do this, for he has subdued all earthly passions during life. The force of his will has been directed into higher channels, 
and there is therefore but little energy of lower desire to be worked out in Karmaloka. His stay there will consequently be very short, and most probably he will have little more than a dreamy half-consciousness of existence, until he sinks into the sleep during which his higher principles finally free themselves from the karmic envelope and enter upon the blissful rest of Devachan. For the person who has not as yet entered upon the path of occult development, what has been described is the ideal state of affairs, but naturally it is not attained by all or even by the majority. The average man has by no means freed himself from the lower desires before death, and it takes a long period of more or less fully conscious life on the astral plane to allow the forces he has generated to work themselves out, and thus release the higher ego. The body which he occupies during this period is Kamarupa, which may be described as a rearrangement of the matter of his astral body. But it is much more defined in outline, and there is also this important difference between the two, that while the astral body if sufficiently awakened during life to function at all freely, would probably be able to visit all, or at any rate most of the subdivisions of its plane. The Karma Rupa has not that liberty, but is strictly confined to that level to which its affinities have drawn it. It has, however, a certain kind of progress connected with it, for it generally happens that the forces a man has set in motion during earth life need for their appropriate working out, a sojourn on more divisions than one of the Karmaloka. And when this is the case, a regular sequence is observed, commencing with the lowest, so that when the Karmarupa has exhausted its attractions to one level, the greater part of its grosser particles fall away, and it finds itself in affinity with a somewhat higher state of existence. Its specific gravity, as it were, is constantly decreasing, and so it steadily rises from the denser to the lighter strata, pausing only when it is exactly balanced for a time. This is evidently the explanation of a remark frequently made by the entities which appear at seances, to the effect that they are about to rise to a higher sphere, from which it will be impossible, or not so easy, to communicate through a medium. And it is, as a matter of fact, true that a person upon the highest subdivision of this plane would find it almost impossible to deal with any ordinary medium. It ought perhaps to be explained here that the definiteness of outline which distinguishes the Kamarupa from the astral body is of an entirely different character from that definiteness which was described as a sign of progress in the astral of the man before death. There can never be any possibility of confusion between the two entities, for while in the case of the man attached to a physical body, the different orders of astral particles are all inextricably mingled and ceaselessly changing their position. After death, their activity is much more circumscribed, since they then sort themselves according to their degree of materiality, and become, as it were, a series of sheaths or shells surrounding him, the grossest being always outside, and so dissipating before the others. This dissipation is not necessarily complete, the extent to which it is carried being governed by the power of Manas to free itself from its connection with any given level. And on this also, as will be seen later, the nature of the shade depends. The poetic idea of death as a universal leveller is a mere absurdity born of ignorance, for as a matter of fact, 
in the vast majority of cases, the loss of the physical body makes no difference whatever in the character or intellect of the person, and there are therefore as many different varieties of intelligence among those whom we usually call the dead as among the living. The popular religious teaching of the West as to man's post-mortem adventures has long been so wildly inaccurate that even intelligent people are often terribly puzzled when they recover consciousness in karma loka after death. The condition in which the new arrival finds himself differs so radically from what he has been led to expect that it is no uncommon case for him to refuse at first to believe that he has passed through the portals of death at all. Indeed, of so little practical value is our much vaunted belief in the immortality of the soul, that most people consider the very fact that they are still conscious an absolute proof that they have not died. The horrible doctrine of eternal punishment, too, is responsible for a vast amount of most pitiable and entirely groundless terror among those newly arrived in Karmaloka, who in many cases spend long periods of acute mental suffering before they can free themselves from the fatal influence of that hideous blasphemy, and realise that the world is governed not according to the caprice of some demon who gloats over human anguish, but according to a benevolent and wonderfully patient law of evolution. Many members of the class we are considering do not really attain an intelligent appreciation of this fact at all, but drift through their astral interlude in the same aimless manner in which they have spent the physical portion of their lives. Thus, in Karma Loka, exactly as on earth, there are the few who comprehend something of their position, and know how to make the best of it, and many who have not yet acquired that knowledge. And there, just as here, the ignorant are rarely ready to profit by the advice or example of the wise. But of whatever grade the entity's intellect may be, it is always a fluctuating, and on the whole a gradually diminishing quantity, for the lower manus is being drawn in opposite directions by the higher triad which acts on it from above its level, and the karma which operates from below, and therefore it oscillates between the two attractions, with an ever-increasing tendency towards the former, as the karmic forces wear themselves out. And here comes in the evil of what is called at seances, the development of a spirit through a medium, a process the object of which is to intensify the downward pull of the karma, to awaken the lower portion of the entity, that being all that can be reached, from the natural and desirable unconsciousness into which it is passing, and thus to prolong unnaturally its existence in the karma loka. The peculiar danger of this will be seen when it is recollected that the real man is all the while steadily withdrawing into himself, and is therefore, as time goes on, less and less able to influence or guide this lower portion, which nevertheless, until the separation is complete, has the power to generate karma, and under the circumstances is obviously far more likely to add evil than good to its record. Thus the harm done is threefold. First, the retardation of the separation between manas and karma, and the consequent waste of time and prolongation of the interval between two incarnations. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. Judy. <laughs> 
Chumba. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Secondly, the extreme probability, almost amounting to certainty, that a large addition will be made to the individual's evil karma, which will have to be worked out in future births. Thirdly, the terrible danger that this abnormal intensification of the force of karma may eventually enable the latter to entangle the whole of the lower manners inextricably and so cause the entire loss of an incarnation. Though such a result as this last mentioned is happily uncommon, it is a thing that has happened more than once, and in very many cases, where the evil has fallen short of this ultimate possibility, the individual has nevertheless lost much more of his lower manus by this additional entanglement with karma than he would have done if left to withdraw into himself quietly as nature intended. It is not denied that a certain amount of good may occasionally be done to very degraded entities at spiritualistic circles, but the intention of nature obviously is that such assistance should be given, as it frequently is, by occult students who are able to visit the astral plane during earth life, and have been trained by competent teachers to deal by whatever methods may be most helpful with the various cases which they encounter. It will be readily seen that such a scheme of help, carrying with it as it does the possibility of instant reference to higher authorities in any doubtful case, is infinitely safer than any casual assistance obtained through a medium who may be, and indeed generally is, entirely ignorant of the laws governing spiritual evolution, and who is as liable to the domination of evil or mischievous influences as of good ones. Apart altogether from any question of development through a medium, there is another and much more frequently exercised influence, which may seriously retard a disembodied entity on his way to Devachan, and that is the intense and uncontrolled grief of his surviving friends or relatives. It is one among many melancholy results of the terribly inaccurate and even irreligious view that we in the West have for centuries been taking of death, that we not only cause ourselves an immense amount of wholly unnecessary pain over this temporary parting from our loved ones, but we also do serious injury to those for whom we bear so deep an affection by means of this very regret which we feel so acutely. As one of our ablest writers has recently told us, when our departed brother is sinking peacefully and naturally into pre-Devachanic unconsciousness, an awakening may be caused by the passionate sorrow and desires of friends left on earth, and these, violently vibrating the karmic elements in the embodied persons, may set up vibrations in the karma rupa of the disembodied, and so reach and rouse the lower manus, not yet withdrawn to and reunited with its parent, the spiritual intelligence. 
Thus it may be roused from its dreamy state to vivid remembrance of the earth-life so lately left. This awakening is often accompanied by acute suffering, and even if this be avoided, the natural process of the triad freeing itself is rudely disturbed, and the completion of its freedom is delayed. Death and After, page 32. It would be well if those whose loved ones have passed on before them would learn from these undoubted facts the duty of restraining, for the sake of those dear ones, a grief which, however natural it may be, is yet in its essence selfish. Not that the occult teaching counsels forgetfulness of the dead, far from it, but it does suggest that a man's affectionate remembrance of his departed friend is a force which, if properly directed into the channel of earnest good wishes for his progress towards Devachan and his quiet passage through Karmaloka, might be of real value to him, whereas when wasted in mourning for him and longing to have him back again, it is not only useless but harmful. It is with a true instinct that the Hindu religion prescribes its Shraddha ceremonies and the Catholic Church its prayers for the dead. It sometimes happens, however, that the desire for communication is from the other side, and that an entity of the class we are considering has something which it specially desires to say to those whom it has left behind. Occasionally, this message is an important one, such as, for example, an indication of the place where a missing will is concealed. But more often, it seems to us quite trivial. Still, whatever it may be, if it is firmly oppressed upon the mind of the dead person, it is undoubtedly desirable that he should be enabled to deliver it, as otherwise the anxiety to do so would perpetually draw his consciousness back into the earth-life and prevent him from passing to higher spheres. In such a case, a psychic who can understand him, or a medium through whom he can write or speak, is of real service to him. It should be observed that the reason why he cannot usually write or speak without a medium is that one state of matter can ordinarily act only upon the state next below it, and, as he now has no denser matter in his organism than that of which the Kamarupa is composed, he finds it impossible to set up vibrations in the physical substance of the air, or to move the physical pencil without borrowing living matter of the intermediate order contained in the etheric double by means of which an impulse can readily be transferred from the one plane to the other. Now, he would be unable to borrow this material from an ordinary person, because such a man's principles would be too closely linked together to be separated by any means likely to be at his command. But the very essence of mediumship is the ready separability of the principles. So, from a medium, he can draw without difficulty the matter he needs for his manifestation, whatever it may be. When he cannot find a medium, or does not understand how to use one, he sometimes makes clumsy and blundering endeavours to communicate on his own account, and by the strength of his will, he sets elemental forces blindly working, perhaps producing such apparently aimless manifestations as stone-throwing, bell-ringing, etc. It consequently frequently happens that a psychic or medium going to a house where such manifestations are taking place may be able to discover what the entity who produces them is attempting to say or do, and may thus put an end to the disturbance. 
This would not, however, invariably be the case, as these elemental forces are occasionally set in motion by entirely different causes. But for one entity who is earthbound by the desire to communicate with his surviving friends, there are thousands who, if left alone, would never think of doing so, although, when the idea is suggested to them through a medium, they will respond to it readily enough, for since during earth life their interests were probably centred less in spiritual than in worldly affairs, it is not difficult to reawaken in them vibrations sympathetic to matters connected with the existence they have so lately left. And this undesirable intensification of early thoughts is frequently brought about by the interference of well-meaning but ignorant friends, who endeavour to get communications from the departed through a medium, with the result that just in proportion to their success he is subjected to the various dangers mentioned above. It should also be remembered that the possible injury to the entity itself is by no means all the harm that may accrue from such a practice, for those who habitually attend séances during life are almost certain to develop a tendency to haunt them after death, and so themselves in turn run the risks into which they have so often brought their predecessors. Besides, it is well known that the vital energy necessary to produce physical manifestations is frequently drawn from the sitters, as well as from the medium, and the eventual effect on the latter is invariably evil, as is evinced by the large number of such sensitives who have gone either morally or psychically to the bad, some becoming epileptic, some taking to drink, others falling under influences which induced them to stoop to fraud and trickery of all kinds. 4. The Shade when the separation of the principles is complete, the karma loka life of the person is over, and as before stated, he passes into the devachanic condition. But just as when he dies to this plane, he leaves his physical body behind him, so, when he dies to the astral plane, he leaves his karma rupa behind him. If he has purged himself from all earthly desires during life, and directed all his energies into the channels of unselfish spiritual aspiration, his higher ego will be able to draw back into itself the whole of the lower manas which it put forth into incarnation. In that case, the Kamarupa left behind on the astral plane will be a mere corpse, like the abandoned physical body, and it will then come not into this class, but into the next. Even in the case of a man of somewhat less perfect life, Almost the same results may be attained if the forces of lower desire are allowed to work themselves out undisturbed in karma loka. But the majority of mankind make but very trifling and perfunctory efforts while on earth to rid themselves of the less elevated impulses of their nature and consequently doom themselves not only to a greatly prolonged sojourn on the astral plane but also to what cannot be described otherwise than as a loss of a portion of the lower manus. This is no doubt a very material method of expressing the great mystery of the reflection of the higher manus in the lower, but since only those who have passed the portals of initiation can fully comprehend this, we must content ourselves with the nearest approximation to exactitude which is possible to us, and as a matter of fact, a very fairly accurate idea of what actually takes place will be obtained by adopting the hypothesis 
that the manasic principle sends down a portion of itself into the lower world of physical life at each incarnation, and expects to be able to withdraw it again at the end of the life, enriched by all its varied experiences. The ordinary man, however, usually allows himself to be so pitiably enslaved by all sorts of base desires, that a certain portion of this lower manus becomes very closely interwoven with karma, and when the separation takes place, his life in karma loka being over, the manasic principle has, as it were, to be torn apart, the degraded portion remaining within the karma-rupa. This karma-rupa, then, consists of the particles of astral matter from which the lower manas has not been able to disengage itself, and which therefore retain it captive. For when manas passes into Devachan, these clinging fragments adhere to a portion of it, and as it were, wrench it away. The proportion of the matter of each level present in the karma-rupa will therefore depend on the extent to which manas has become inextricably entangled with the lower passions. It will be obvious that as manas, in passing from level to level, is unable to free itself completely from the matter of each, the karma-rupa will show the presence of each grosser kind which has succeeded in retaining its connection with it. Thus comes into existence the class of entity which has been called the shade, an entity, be it observed, which is not in any sense the real individual at all, for he has passed away into Devachan, but nevertheless not only bears his exact personal appearance, but possesses his memory and all his little idiosyncrasies, and may therefore very readily personate him, as indeed it frequently does at seances. It is not, of course, conscious of any act of impersonation, for as far as its intellect goes, it must necessarily suppose itself to be the individual, but one can imagine the horror and disgust of the friends of the departed if they could only realise that they had been deceived into accepting as their loved one a mere soulless bundle of all his worst qualities. Its length of life varies according to the amount of the lower manus which animates it, but as this is all the while in the process of fading out, its intellect is a steadily diminishing quantity though it may possess a great deal of a certain sort of animal cunning, and even quite towards the end of its career, it is still able to communicate by borrowing temporary intelligence from the medium. From its very nature, it is exceedingly liable to be swayed by all kinds of evil influences, and, having separated from its higher ego, it has nothing in its constitution capable of responding to good ones. It therefore lends itself readily to various minor purposes of some of the baser sort of black magicians. So much of the matter of the manasic nature as it possesses gradually disintegrates and returns to its own plane, though not to any individual mind, and thus the shade fades by almost imperceptible gradations into a member of our next class. 5. The Shell this is absolutely the mere astral corpse in process of disintegration, every particle of the lower manus having left it. It is entirely without any kind of consciousness or intelligence, and is drifted passively about upon the astral currents, just as a cloud might be swept in any direction by a passing breeze. But even yet it may be galvanized for a few moments into a ghastly burlesque of life, 
if it happens to come within reach of a medium's aura. Under such circumstances, it will still exactly resemble its departed personality in appearance, and may even reproduce to some extent his familiar expressions or handwriting, but it does so merely by the automatic action of the cells of which it is composed, which tend under stimulation to repeat the form of action to which they are most accustomed, and whatever amount of intelligence may lay behind any such manifestation has most assuredly no connection with the original entity, but is lent by the medium or his guides for the occasion. It is, however, more frequently temporarily vitalized in quite another manner, which will be described under the next head. It has also the quality of being still blindly responsive to such vibrations, usually of the lowest order, as were frequently set up in it during its last stage of existence as a shade, and consequently persons in whom evil desires or passions are predominant will be very likely, when they attend physical seances, to find these intensified, and as it were, thrown back upon them by the unconscious shells. There is also another variety of corpse which it is necessary to mention under this head, though it belongs to a much earlier stage of man's post-mortem history. It has been stated above that after the death of the physical body, the Kama Rupa is comparatively quickly formed, and the etheric double cast off, this latter body being destined to slow disintegration, precisely as is the Kama Rupic shell at a later stage of the proceedings. This etheric shell, however, is not to be met with drifting aimlessly about, as is the variety with which we have hitherto been dealing. On the contrary, it remains within a few yards of the decaying physical body, and since it is readily visible to anyone even slightly sensitive, it is accountable for many of the commonly current stories of churchyard ghosts. A psychically developed person, passing one of our great cemeteries, will see hundreds of these bluish-white, misty forms hovering over the graves where are laid the physical vestures which they have recently left. And as they, like their lower counterparts, are in various stages of disintegration, the sight is by no means a pleasant one. This also, like the other kind of shell, is entirely devoid of consciousness and intelligence, and though it may, under certain circumstances, be galvanized into a very horrible form of temporary life, this is possible only by means of some of the most loathsome rites of one of the worst forms of black magic, about which the less said the better. It will thus be seen that in the successive stages of his progress from earth life to Devachan, man casts off and leaves to slow disintegration no less than three corpses, the physical body, the etheric double, and the karma rupa, all of which are by degrees resolved into their constituent elements and utilized anew on their respective planes by the wonderful chemistry of nature. 6. The Vitalized Shell this entity ought not, strictly speaking, to be classified under the head human at all, since it is only its outer vesture, the passive, senseless shell, that was once an appanage of humanity. Such life, intelligence, desire, and will as it may possess, are those of the artificial elemental animating it, and that, though in terrible truth a creation of man's evil thought, is not itself human. 
it will therefore perhaps be better to deal with it more fully under its appropriate class among the artificial entities, as its nature and genesis will be more readily comprehensible by the time that part of our subject is reached. Let it suffice here to mention that it is always a malevolent being, a true tempting demon, whose evil influence is limited only by the extent of its power. Like the shade, it is frequently used to further the horrible purposes of the voodoo and obeya forms of magic. Some writers have spoken of it under the name elementary, but as that title has, at one time or other, been used for almost every variety of post-mortem entity, it has become so vague and meaningless that it is perhaps better to avoid it. 7. The Suicide or Victim of Sudden Death Experience the best in relaxation and entertainment with Saul Good Streaming at SaulGood.org. Our extensive library features hundreds of audiobooks, thousands of short stories, original podcasts, and popular sounds for sleep, meditation, and relaxation all ad-free. Whether you want to escape into a good book or fall asleep to your favorite ambient sound, we have something for everyone. Go to SaulGood.org to start streaming and discover your new go-to for entertainment and relaxation. That's S-O-L-G-O-O-D dot O-R-G. It will be readily understood that a man who is torn from physical life hurriedly, while in full health and strength, whether by accident or suicide, finds himself upon the astral plane under conditions differing considerably from those which surround one who dies either from old age or from disease. In the latter case, the hold of earthly desires upon the entity is more or less weakened, and probably the very grossest particles are already got rid of, so that the karma rupa will most likely form itself on the sixth or fifth subdivision of the karma loka, or perhaps even higher. The principles have been gradually prepared for separation, and the shock is therefore not so great. In the case of the accidental death or suicide, none of these preparations have taken place, and the withdrawal of the principles from their physical encasement has been very aptly compared to the tearing of the stone out of an unripe fruit. A great deal of the grossest kind of astral matter still clings around the personality, which is consequently held in the seventh or lowest subdivision of the Karma Loka. This has already been described as anything but a pleasant abiding place, yet it is by no means the same for all those who are compelled for a time to inhabit it. The victims of sudden death, whose earth lives have been pure and noble, have no affinity for this plane, and the time of their sojourn upon it is past, to quote from an early letter on this subject, either in happy ignorance and full oblivion, or in a state of quiet slumber, a sleep full of rosy dreams. But on the other hand, if their earth lives have been low and brutal, selfish and sensual, they will, like the suicides, be conscious to the fullest extent in this undesirable region, and they are liable to develop into terribly evil entities, inflamed with all kinds of horrible appetites which they can no longer satisfy directly now they are without a physical body. They gratify their loathsome passions vicariously through a medium or any sensitive person whom they can obsess, and they take a devilish delight in using all the arts of delusion which the astral plane puts in their power 
in order to lead others into the same excesses which have proved so fatal to themselves. Quoting again from the same letter, these are the pisachas, the incubi and succubi of medieval writers, demons of thirst and gluttony, of lust and avarice, of intensified craft, wickedness and cruelty, provoking their victims to horrible crimes, and revelling in their commission. From this class and the last are drawn the tempters, the devils of ecclesiastical literature, but their power fails utterly before purity of mind and purpose. They can do nothing with a man unless he has first encouraged in himself the vices into which they seek to draw him. One whose psychic sight has been opened will often see crowds of these unfortunate creatures hanging round butchers' shops, public houses, or other even more disreputable places, wherever the gross influences in which they delight are to be found, and where they encounter men and women still in the flesh who are like-minded with themselves. For such an entity as one of these to meet with a medium with whom he is in affinity is indeed a terrible misfortune. Not only does it enable him to prolong enormously his dreadful life in Karmaloka, but it renews for perhaps an indefinite period his power to generate evil karma, and so prepare for himself a future incarnation of the most degraded character, besides running the risk of losing a large portion or even the whole of the lower manus. On this lowest level of the astral plane, he must stay at least as long as his earthly life would have lasted if it had not been prematurely cut short. And if he is fortunate enough not to meet with a sensitive through whom his passions can be vicariously gratified, the unfulfilled desires will gradually burn themselves out, and the suffering caused in the process will probably go far towards working off the evil karma of the past life. The position of the suicide is further complicated by the fact that his rash act has enormously diminished the power of the higher ego to withdraw its lower portion into itself, and therefore has exposed him to manifold and great additional dangers. But it must be remembered that the guilt of suicide differs considerably, according to its circumstances, from the morally blameless act of Seneca or Socrates, through all degrees down to the heinous crime of the wretch who takes his own life in order to escape from the entanglements into which his villainy has brought him, and of course the position after death varies accordingly. It should be noted that this class, as well as the shades and the vitalized shells, are all what may be called minor vampires. That is to say, whenever they have the opportunity, they prolong their existence by draining away the vitality from human beings whom they find themselves able to influence. This is why both medium and sitters are often so weak and exhausted after a physical seance. A student of occultism is taught how to guard himself from their attempts, but without that knowledge it is difficult for one who puts himself in their way to avoid being more or less laid under contribution by them. 8. The Vampire and Werewolf There remain, too, even more awful, but happily very rare possibilities to be mentioned before this part of our subject is completed, and though they differ very widely in many ways, we may yet perhaps group them together, since they have in common the qualities of unearthly horror and of extreme rarity, the latter arising from the fact 
that they are really relics of earlier races. We of the fifth root race ought to have evolved beyond the possibility of meeting such a ghastly fate as is indicated by either of the two headings of this subsection, and we have so nearly done it that these creatures are commonly regarded as mere medieval fables. Yet there are examples to be found occasionally, even now, though chiefly in countries where there is a considerable strain of fourth-race blood, such as Russia or Hungary. The popular legends about them are probably often considerably exaggerated, but there is nevertheless a terribly serious substratum of truth beneath the eerie stories which pass from mouth to mouth among the peasantry of Central Europe. The general characteristics of such tales are too well known to need more than a passing reference. A fairly typical specimen of the vampire story, though it does not profess to be more than the merest fiction, is Sheridan Le Fanu's Carmilla, while a very remarkable account of an unusual form of this creature is to be found in Isis Unveiled, Volume 1, page 454. All readers of theosophical literature are familiar with the idea that it is possible for a man to live a life so absolutely degraded and selfish, so utterly wicked and brutal, that the whole of his lower manus may become entirely enmeshed in karma, and finally separated from its spiritual source in the higher ego. Some students even seem to think that such an occurrence is quite a common one, and that we may meet scores of such soulless men, as they have been called, in the street every day of our lives. But this, happily, is untrue. To attain the appalling preeminence in evil, which thus involves the entire loss of a personality and the weakening of the developing individuality behind, a man must stifle every gleam of unselfishness or spirituality, and must have absolutely no redeeming point whatever. And when we remember how often, even in the worst of villains, there is to be found something not wholly bad, we shall realise that the abandoned personalities must always be a very small minority. Still, comparatively few though they be, they do exist, and it is from their ranks that the still rarer vampire is drawn. The lost entity would very soon after death find himself unable to stay in Karmaluka and would be irresistibly drawn in full consciousness into his own place, the mysterious eighth sphere, there slowly to disintegrate after experiences best left undescribed. If, however, he perishes by suicide or sudden death, he may, under certain circumstances, especially if he knows something of black magic, hold himself back from that awful fate by a death in life scarcely less awful the ghastly existence of the vampire. Since the eighth sphere cannot claim him until after the death of the body, he preserves it in a kind of cataleptic trance, by the horrible expedient of the transfusion into it of blood drawn from other human beings by his semi-materialized Kamarupa, and thus postpones his final destiny by the commission of wholesale murder. As popular superstition again quite rightly supposes, the easiest and most effectual remedy in such a case is to exhume and burn the body, thus depriving the creature of his point d'appui. When the grave is opened, the body usually appears quite fresh and healthy, and the coffin is not infrequently filled with blood. Of course, in countries where cremation is the custom, vampirism of this sort is impossible. 
The werewolf, though equally horrible, is the product of a somewhat different karma, and indeed ought perhaps to have found a place under the first, instead of the second division of the human inhabitants of Karmaloka, since it is always during a man's lifetime that he first manifests under this form. It invariably implies some knowledge of magical arts, sufficient at any rate to be able to project the astral body. When a perfectly cruel and brutal man does this, there are certain circumstances under which the body may be seized upon by other astral entities and materialized, not into the human form, but into that of some wild animal, usually the wolf, and in that condition it will range the surrounding country, killing other animals, and even human beings, thus satisfying not only its own craving for blood, but that of the fiends who drive it on. In this case, as so often with the ordinary astral body, any wound inflicted upon the animal materialization will be reproduced upon the human physical body by the extraordinary phenomenon of repercussion, though after the date of that physical body, the Kamarupa, which will probably continue to appear in the same form, will be less vulnerable. It will then, however, be also less dangerous, as unless it can find a suitable medium, it will be unable to materialize fully. It has been the fashion of this century to scoff at what are called the foolish superstitions of the ignorant peasantry, but as in the above cases, so in many others, the occult student finds on careful examination that obscure or forgotten truths of nature lie behind what at first sight appears mere nonsense, and he learns to be cautious in rejecting as well as cautious in accepting. Intending explorers of the astral plane need have little fear of encountering the very unpleasant creatures described under this head, for as before stated, they are even now extremely rare, and as time goes on, their number will happily steadily diminish. In any case, their manifestations are usually restricted to the immediate neighbourhood of their physical bodies, as might be supposed from their extremely material nature. The Black Magician or His Pupil This person corresponds at the other extremity of the scale to our second class of departed entities, the Chela awaiting reincarnation. But in this case, instead of obtaining permission to adopt an unusual method of progress, the man is defying the natural process of evolution by maintaining himself in Kamaloka by magical arts, sometimes of the most horrible nature. It would be easy to make various subdivisions of this class according to their objects, their methods, and the possible duration of their existence on this plane. But as they are by no means fascinating objects of study, and all that an occult student wishes to know about them is how to avoid them, it will probably be more interesting to pass on to the examination of another part of our subject. It may, however, be just mentioned that every such human entity which prolongs its life thus on the astral plane beyond its natural limit, invariably does so at the expense of others, and by the absorption of their life in some form or another. End of part three. Amplify your productivity and creativity with soulgoodsounds.com. For a minimal $10 a month, gain unlimited access to ad-free, soothing sounds designed to boost efficiency. Discover your perfect soundscape at soulgoodsounds.com and unlock your full potential.